0: And thanks for listening. How
1: will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing international efforts by governments and corporations to reduce the carbon pollution that is disrupting the Earth's climate. United Nations negotiations on a global deal are adrift at sea. And in the United States, comprehensive climate legislation is a political non-starter. People hoping for some progress toward a low-carbon economy are pinning their downsized hopes on a June meeting in Rio de Janeiro to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 1992 Earth Summit attended by President George H.W. Bush and other world leaders. In the next hour, we'll assess markets and policies aimed at weaning the world off fossil fuels with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And we are pleased to be joined by a scholar, a reporter, and an investor. Tom Heller is the executive director of the Climate Policy Initiative and professor emeritus at Stanford Law School. He's an authority on global energy use and international law. Mark Shapiro is a senior correspondent at the Center for Investigative Reporting and has written extensively about carbon markets for the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, and other publications. Mark Stewart is co-founder of EcoSecurities, an aggregator of carbon offset projects, sold in 2009 to J.P. Morgan Chase for $200 million and is now a private equity investor. Please welcome them to Climate One. (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you for coming. Um, Tom Heller, what is the role of the United Nations negotiation, the international negotiation process, and how is that different than what was envisioned when it started 20 years ago?
0: You <laughs> trying to not be too uh, prejudicial here. Um,
1: oh, go ahead. You
0: you you use the uh, analogy that it was a adrift at, uh, at the present time after the Durban meetings, which brought up the image to me of one of these coastal liners out there with Somali pirates um, all around it and somebody tugging it into shore. Um, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, to, to 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 start the I'm, I'm not a big fan of these uh, of these negotiations, but I I think it's been a very interesting process, and in many ways, uh, the negotiations that took place at Durban recently were a bit of of pulling a cat diplomatically out of a hat. I mean, it it was a very difficult situation, and I'll just suggest that the reason it was a very difficult situation was that Durban, as many of you know, in 2011 was dealing with the problem that the Kyoto Protocol was going to end in 2012. And the Kyoto Protocol, which reflects in many ways the original model that people developed all the way back in the early 1990s, about how to deal with climate has been a continuing development that, in my view, uh, in a great many ways, no longer fits the situation in the world. And we can talk about that. But it was a real negotiation with huge numbers of people, organizations, negotiators, who had deep commitments to this type of process and these types of goals. And you may remember that in 2009, at major negotiations at Copenhagen, there was a substantial breakdown of what many people hoped would be a breakthrough period. And out of that negotiation in Copenhagen, which in many ways was a failure of the original model to be successfully resolved, arose another line of ...approach to the climate problem. That line came in something called the Copenhagen Accord. It was further developed at the meetings in Cancun... ...the subsequent year. And I think the real trick in Durban... ...was somehow Janus-like... ...moving away from the older style of negotiation... ...onto the newer style of international collaboration... Without having any real diplomatic breakdown where people walked out and in this thing called the Durban mandate, they managed to do that reasonably well. Now, I'll just stop by saying none of this has any real impact on whether we're solving the climate problem. But diplomatically, it was a pretty cool move.
1: Uh, Mark Stewart, let's talk about markets. Are markets having a real impact? Are they kind of moving forward while there's this diplomatic, slow-moving diplomatic process, transitioning diplomatic process that Tom Heller just mentioned?
3: Well, right now, markets are very, you know, at best static and probably going backwards. Uh, the reality is, is that the markets were built out for the expectation of an expansion from Kyoto through Copenhagen and to the post-Kyoto phase and the sort of the amount of – Infrastructure and capital was devoted to that, that was raised by companies, you know, and by funds and other things to create that, was not based upon the demand and supply, uh, curves of, of the Kyoto, but it was based upon something that was going to happen after that, with the inclusion of the United States, with the inclusion of other, of other major economies, and with deeper cuts. So right now we've seen a complete reversal of that with, you know, with the, with the sort of repudiation of the Kyoto trajectory. And what that means is that markets right now are vastly overserved with capital and with capability versus what the actual demand is. So right now, when it comes to actual emissions mitigation, what markets are doing I think is fairly minimal. What markets have done, which is really important over the last 10 years, which is the idea that in 1997 in Kyoto, and I was in Kyoto. In fact, Durban was the first meeting I've missed in quite a while of all this. But in 1997, there was no idea of having, you know, a private sector that was going to seek out emissions mitigation throughout the entire global economy. And that's what Kyoto created. Korea and, the C- and what the Clean Development Mechanism part of Kyoto created was you had this huge profile of people, ranging from, you know, people within GE and Siemens and ABB to people in garages in India and Malaysia and China looking for ways to mitigate emissions, whether it was in agriculture, whether it was in land use, whether it was in energy Waste management, whatever it may be. So it was a cultural change of tremendous import. Whether it actually had any real impact overall on emissions, ultimately, you know, the only demand for those types of emission reductions came from the European Union and Japan, and was probably no more than maybe a billion to a billion point two tons overall which when you consider that since Kyoto the world has emitted somewhere between 300 and 400 billion tons is pretty meaningless. But that cultural shift to create, as it is, to have people out there searching for these things, that didn't exist in 1997. And to think that that would have created without the market drivers that Kyoto set up and then the European Emissions Trading System and several other systems, to think that would have just magically appeared is is naïve. So, I mean, again, you know, from a, from a qualitative perspective, extraordinarily important. From a quantitative perspective, virtually meaningless at this juncture because the expectation was that infrastructure that we were building up from 2000 through 2009 when Copenhagen fell apart, that that infrastructure was going to go on to bigger and greater things with more demand and more supply. And right now it's oversupplying a very, very small amount of supply and demand.
1: So the political process and transition, markets contracting, not realizing the yeah. expectations. Mark Shapiro, let's get you in here in terms of this moment where we are. How do you cover this very closely? How do you see the combination of the markets and the political dynamic right now?
4: Well, um, first of all, it's very interesting to hear, uh, Mr. Stewart, because I know he's been in the middle of this uh, market for quite some time, and um, I think that that if you wanted to create a foreign aid program that actually helps spur uh, interesting kind of innovative new level projects in developing countries around the world, uh, then you might actually come up with an emissions reduction scheme like that that was invented uh, uh, at the United Nations to deal with um, um, emission offsets, which is really what we're talking about, the the, the buying and selling of emission offsets in different parts of the world. The, uh, the, The question is, that was decided in 1997, essentially by U.S., very heavy U.S. pressure, um, three years, of course, before we pulled out from Kyoto, but essentially it was uh, Clinton and Gore who basically pushed through the market approach, and uh, the rest of the world somewhat begrudgingly went along with it, and then we were left with the, what's known as cap-and-trade market, and uh, of course in 2001, Bush pulled out, so the rest of the world world's left to execute this program. So, the question is, this is the program that was the world decided upon to pursue to uh, reduce emissions. So it's a legitimate question to ask how effective it's been at reducing emissions. I think it's interesting what Mark says in that it, it actually has had an effect of steering money from the developed world to the developing world to places that they never would have gone before. And if you like that idea, which actually probably many of us do, I mean, that's 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 kind of a nice idea. But if you're actually hoping to get emission reductions... I think there have been uh, 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 repeated demonstrations that the market uh, uh, has failed significantly at getting the reductions. It's an economic transaction. Is the world, the, the precious resources that we have, is the world uh, obtaining the emission reductions that they're paying for? And I think basically the answer to that is, for the most part, no.
1: Tom Heller, you agree?
0: Yeah, partly and partly not. Um and uh, since I was part of that pressure in 1997, oh, okay. yeah. that yeah. was there. Uh, <laughs> this is this. This should be taken in a, a light of a very strong mea culpa. Um, but uh, I mean, markets are complex things, and and, um, and and we have to think about what they're doing. And Mark can certainly elaborate on this. But uh, the the idea of a market was basically to set a price on carbon which everybody thinks is necessary. You can do it through a tax. You can do it through a market. And what you do is by putting a cap on the amount of any commodity that's allowed to um, be in play, um, you make it scarcer. Now, it's an artificial market because it's established by government decree. It's not simply a sugar market, although most markets uh, have a lot of mix of regulation and, and, and other behavior. And with an artificial market, it becomes really important that the quality of the regulator, like any financial market, be very high. And, and I'm going to leave leave that to Mark to talk about. Um, but but I want to say the following: um, the market that was created uh, was uh, a market that is primarily functioned within Europe. I mean, we tried to create a market here in the United States, and many of you remember, and it failed badly in, in in our in our own political system. And so the principal market we really have to look at to gain experience is the European market called the European Trading System. And it's a nicely designed system. A cap is on there and every year that cap gets tighter by one point seven four percent all the way out to twenty fifty when there would only be twenty percent of, of current 1990-level uh, European emissions left within the European system. Now, there was an addendum to that, which is what uh, we were talking about a moment ago, which is to say, well, maybe you can bring some assets in from the outside. It's not just a market within Europe. And that has been a real problem. And, and I'm, I'm going to, um, to, to, to not elaborate on that at the moment and, and let my colleagues do so. But I think the interesting thing is that the bulk of the market was always within Europe. And the really interesting question is, why has that, which had prices as high as, what, 28 euros yeah. not very long ago, $35, depending on what the exchange rate was, now collapsed? It was down as low as 6 or 7 euros. It's now up to 9 or so. Um, and these these funny... CDM or trading between Europe and, and, and developing countries, in effect, trade at a somewhat of a discount to that because people are not sure that it will have the same quality. But the most interesting thing has been the real price decline in Europe. And that one, I'll just say or suggest to you, has a couple of important reasons behind it. A lot has to do with other policies the Europeans have put into play. So, for example, they have required that there be 20% renewables uh, energy uh, activities in each country of the European Union. Now, that, of course, means that they're going to reduce emissions by increasing the effect of, of, of renewables. They are now struggling right in the in the European Parliament with another decree that would require them to have mandatory energy efficiency. But you can see that if you do things through other policies, the amount you need to demand within the market is going to go down because you're going to have fewer emissions. Mm -hmm. And the price has come down enormously. It could drop to zero. But it doesn't mean that Europe is not reducing its emissions. It might be if they're putting in what could be arguably phony assets, But if they're reducing their emissions through other policies, even though the market price may go to zero, they may still be meeting their emissions targets. Now, they're they're meeting their targets in part because their economy is as bad as ours. And when you have a bad economy, emissions go down. But these other things are operating, too. So we have to be careful to think about the instrument, what it's supposed to do, whether it's and why it may be working or prices show up in different places. And then we can come back to this other source of supply, which is what's getting done in China or what's getting done in South Africa, that the Europeans may be allowed to count as if they were doing it in Europe, if they pay for it.
1: Tom Heller is executive director of the Climate Policy Initiative. We're talking about carbon trading at Climate One. Uh, Mark Stewart, uh, Tom Heller mentioned that the system
3: was well designed,
1: but you think it might be have been designed to be gamed?
3: Um, I'm not quite sure I would agree with that. Um, you know I think the European emissions trading system was well designed. and I think you know the notion of using you know, of using the developing world and the tremendous emission efficiencies that are available out there is a noble cause. I mean the reality is is that, you know, when we when we signed Kyoto at the time, you know, China's emissions were approximately what, forty to fifty percent of the Ameri- of the United States' and as of a year and a half or two years ago, they passed the U.S. So we're seeing there are clearly, clearly substantial opportunities from a global perspective to reduce emissions in these places of very strong emissions growth and of and of great opportunities. So, you know, to to leave those alone I think is also somewhat foolhardy. I think we that we have to find ways to do both, and I'm not not disagreeing with you, Tom. But I'm saying that you know where I would see the real issue right now is not in not in the Europe not in the European system, but in the fact that you know first of all, as you mentioned, it's all about supply and demand. When the United States pulled out of Kyoto, when Canada functionally pulled out of Kyoto, and when Australia pulled out of Kyoto, we pulled approximately what about a billion tons? Of, and
0: Japan is now pulled
3: out. So. Japan, but Japan bought a lot. Japan did a lot as well, but even prior, during the Kyoto period, you know, that brought about a billion tons of demand for emissions mitigation out of the market, okay, from the perspective, you know, which meant that, you know, there was a much lower need for those emission reduction potential that was out there in the developing world. So if the oversupply, as we talked about before, was focused into Europe and to a lesser extent into Japan. Uh, what would the world look like had the Kyoto system and the targets bit that were agreed in Kyoto come into play? Difficult to say, but I would say that you would have a much – you'd have a more robust pricing signal globally than we do right now. Um, Mark,
1: Mark Shapiro, you want to jump in here?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to um,
4: uh, make the point here, Let's not, just not to not lose um, sense of what ultimately we're talking about, uh, is 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 applying a price to carbon. So basically the, we're, we're trying to apply a price to carbon. What, is, what does that mean? That means that the um, – amount of money that we now spend on our fossil fuel-generated energy does not reflect anything close to the actual cost of that energy. That's essentially what this whole apparatus is all about. That's what Kyoto was about. That's what uh, Durban was about. That's what every negotiation is about. How do you apply a price to carbon? So there has been a um, – the, the markets were one approach to trying to ap- uh, apply a price to carbon, and um, and it has had the effects that we've discussed here uh, very b- briefly – uh, and uh, but the fundamental question is how do you apply a price that reflects the actual cost of energy? It's actually uh, uh, I'm thinking about this because I wrote as, uh, as, as these two gentlemen certainly know, uh, a very critical uh, story about the uh, inner workings of the, of, of the carbon market and really what are you getting the the Cover story in
1: Harper's is called yeah, Conning the right. Climate.
4: <laughs> yeah, the headline tells you this story. Uh, and, uh, but then uh, three months or four months ago, I actually wrote a piece in The Atlantic, which was actually about the uh, reticence of the United States to actually join a carbon trading system when it comes to the uh, emissions of aviation, of airplanes, because the European Union has a whole new policy to uh, require that airplanes pay for their emissions with emission credit, with emission allowances, which essentially introduces aviation into the carbon markets. Now, whatever you think about the carbon markets and their effectiveness, the basic principle that airplanes, that airlines uh, should pay for the emissions that they are releasing directly into the atmosphere is a very important fundamental principle. And so that principle kind of, in this case, that's how you find as a journalist, anyway, that you can look at the markets in one way and look at it in another way and actually talking about the uh, extreme reticence of the United States in engaging with international systems designed to create uh, a design to put put a price on carbon that actually reflects its actual cost. And I think uh, more and more across the world now, what you're seeing without an agreement, without a a, uh, a successor to Kyoto, what you're seeing is um, very diverse approaches to this question of how we apply a price to carbon.
1: So, so it's, it's open game. Yeah. But let's stay it, on this yeah. European airline thing. This is really interesting. There's U.S. carriers on one side saying, no, you are not going to tax our planes coming into Europe. European carriers saying, right. hey, we're already living with this system yes. within yeah. Europe. That's yeah. fine with us. We want to yeah. be level playing field with the U.S. carriers. There's lots of environmentalists and governments lined up with the European carriers. Mark or Tom, yeah. do you have some thoughts on that? No,
0: it's not just the U.S. It's all the developing countries, yeah. including China. We're oh, okay, in firm so- alliance with them. Um, threatening to sue the Europeans, uh, just as we threatened to sue the Chinese for subsidizing solar power. Um, So it's a carbon trade
4: dispute. It's a carbon trade war. Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) In effect, and (laughs) and I (laughs) mean, (laughs) I agree very much with what you just said. Um, We thought we were going to do this at the international level. We thought we were going to have a global cap at the beginning. We thought we were going to divide up the amount of carbon in the world Country by country, each country was going to get its own cap. And when you added all the caps together, you would get the global cap. And that's exactly where Mark was suggesting that the demand was going to come from. And gradually, these negotiations that had magically given out, here's how much you can do, China. Here's how much you can do or how much it's not to, to start the game rolling, uh, to start the trading system rolling. um, uh, These these there were going to be constrictions over time until we got to the proper price on carbon, which is much higher than the price that anybody initially suggested, which was determined by the quantities that were being allowed. Now, that broke down and it broke down much earlier than Copenhagen. It was not going to happen because no one could agree on these assignments. That is to say, who got what percentage of the emissions uh, permits that were out there because these are valuable assets. They're just like a bond or any other financial asset. If you hold them, you are richer. If you need them, you are poorer because you have to go out and buy them. So the international system, I think, in all of its complexity, um, which was what every economist one did because this was a global good and everybody participated in it, textbook case of what you were supposed to do, um, I think was really on a bad track well before Copenhagen occurred. Copenhagen was perhaps the engine running off the edge on this agreement. Um, Now, that's not to say that things don't happen nationally. And at the national level, A great deal may be involving markets, okay? It may be the way things are done. What's most interesting to me about the European market is that they designed it way into the future so that if you were someone like a paper mill or a concrete factory or an airline, as long as they were covered by this, and you thought about your future and you said, well, I'm not sure I really need these permits now because my emissions aren't that high but I can see that in the future I'm going to need a lot when they start to get more expensive as the supply constricts. You would go out and buy them, and you would buy them to store them or to trade them if you wanted to. Um, And the interesting thing is why has the price come so low when the market is actually structured way out into the future, to 2050? Why aren't people buying to store them or to hedge And that may be the most interesting question that's out there right now because what it implies and seems to imply is that many of the the investors in the market who need this don't believe that the targets will be credible. Okay, There's a loss of credibility in the political future of that constriction, which is an extremely interesting question. At the same time, Australia now has a market. There are experiments with markets going on in China. There I don't think markets are going away because they are a good way of establishing a price. I don't think it's how a lot has happened that has happened that we don't notice yet. And we can talk about that. But again, markets must be well regulated or you get some of the kinds of problems that Mark pointed to in his article.
3: Mark Stewart, do you want to get into this? Yeah, just, just, just a couple comments. Um, you know, in regards to, you know, what, what, what we did over these number of years, you know, my company alone interfaced with several hundred projects around the world in China and India, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, etc. And we were, you know, working with with firms that were looking to ways to mitigate emissions. And it was a very obscure thing they had to do. They had to go through this whole documentation process of what they were doing on their landfill or their wind energy project or their building efficiency project or whatever it was, put it through a regulatory process in Bonn, Germany, okay, which they've never even heard of probably, and then work their way back so that that created commodity then would go into this bizarre European market that they didn't really understand anyway. But what was happening, you have to take what was going on on the ground. People on the ground were doing things. They were building the wind projects. They were capturing the landfill gas. They were building the scrubbers on the back end of the of the fluorocarbon plants. Whatever it may be, they were doing it. There was physical activity going on. Now with the – With the sort of diminishment of this market, Tom is absolutely right. What you now have is you now have countries such as Thailand and Chile and China and India and South Africa looking to put together sort of alternative value mechanisms that can keep those businesses moving. They recognize that they've created good businesses. They're good for their country. They're good for employment, good for local pollution, good for building out technology and capability, But there's no longer this ability to shove it through this obscure U.N. system in Bonn. So you have the emergence of things like feed-in tariffs in places like Thailand and Indonesia and Chile. You have depreciation systems going into play, depreciation allowances happening in various markets. You have an energy efficiency screen-based trading system going on in India right now. All of these things are replacing what occurred. Would we have gotten to that point without this, you know, grand experiment, which, you know, is probably in many ways a failure? I doubt it. But without that sort of broader, you know, political will, and I would go a little bit further, Tom, would say that it was, you know, the the whole Kyoto process was doomed once it came to the point of the United States and China having to come together on a deal with the idea that China and the U.S. had to both agree an emissions number, That doomed it right there. That's 40 to 45 percent of the world's emissions between two countries who are involved in a global geopolitical fight on many, many different levels, and this is just one of them. Those two countries weren't going to ever agree on anything along those two lines, and therefore the idea of a global system was doomed. So once you come to that recognition that the global system cannot happen in the current construct of the power transition that we are undergoing as a global society – You come to the point where national, where governments that realize that there really are some benefits to pushing these types of projects, projects, whether it's clean energy, whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's methane capture, whether it's agricultural change, whether it's land use protection, whatever it may be. And these are happening in many different places. Indonesia is pushing the world on forestry management, as is Brazil, to a great extent. Once they come to realize and say, we have to do this domestically, you have a much more stable set of incentives that, frankly, investors like myself and others can then invest in. And that's the point is, you can't necessarily buy into a system when you look at it and say, this only happens if the United States and China happen to agree on this. You can invest on something when you hear, you know, when you hear the Indonesian parliament say, we're going to do a feed-in tariff because we see the strategic advantages of diversifying our energy system.
1: So enlightened, self-interested national action will create absolutely this framework for this to happen.
4: I mean, I think that I think that's, I think that is um, largely what is happening, and uh, and so you end up with this somewhat chaotic situation. I think the most amazing uh, uh, trade case that I've gotten uh, had a chance to research. Uh, I work at the Center for Investigative Reporting, which thankfully gives you time to get into these kinds of topics. Nonprofit journalism organization. And the uh, uh, one of the fascinating trade cases, uh, you alluded to this, Mr. Heller, uh, was uh, for years, certainly starting in the late 90s, coming out of Kyoto, the United States was pushing China to essentially um, reduce its energy use and to um, promote uh, more renewable uh, energy sources. So uh, 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 a year and a half ago, uh, the steel workers have been trying to put their workers back to work in green industries, did like a 200-page portfolio outlining essentially how, how, how China had been subsidizing its, its solar and wind energy. It's a fantastic document, and everybody's interested in what's going on in China. And that later led to, uh, sent to the USTR, which then filed a trade complaint against China for subsidizing its wind and solar energy. So, number one, the surrealism of that flip is, uh, is pretty interesting. When uh, uh, the United States, of course, had cut back on its own subsidies to wind and solar over several decades before that moment. Um, and uh, and so it tells you what China war. is, which gets you to a trade war, but it also actually tells you something about what the world's leading emitter is putting its money into, its public money into, which is kind of green, renewable uh, technology. Mm-hmm. So there's a, um, the, it may be worth uh, people uh, being aware of what China's calculations are. Let's, yeah, let's talk about not that. sentimental about, you know. What
1: are China's calculations? Right. They're pumping a lot of public money into these technologies. Do they want to run away with these uh, technologies? Some people even suggested that in Copenhagen, China was stalling to get a little bit of a lead so they could get it further down on batteries and new technologies that the West owned in the 20th century that they could <clears> own in the 21st century. Mark Stewart?
3: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, China's indication in Durban that they were ultimately going to be willing to take on, Some sort of cap, probably by 2020 or something like that, is clearly the signal the world's been waiting for in a while for that. And, you know, clearly China is trading treasury bills for green technology as fast as it can right now. The 100 billion a year, whatever it might be at this juncture that China has put into this market, whether it is in technology or develop, or project development, you know, you looked at, you know, I remember in, in the Bali conference in 2007, You know, the head of the World Global Wind Energy Council said to me – I was on a buffet line with him. He said, I was just in China. You know, two years ago, China didn't really have a single wind fab. In two years, they'll be the biggest in the world. And I kind of laughed at him. And it's, as China does in most markets, when they put their mind to it they and they put their capital to it, they take them over. And that's what's happened in solar. That's what's happened in, in wind. Absolutely right. But the point is, is that if you were China thinking strategically and you were sitting on enormous number of treasury bills right now, would you be trying to trade those for productive assets? I would. Uh, you know, I think it's a pretty substantial risk to be sitting on U.S. currency if you're China right now. And I think it's a, it's, you know, it, it's a very logical thing to do. And if they start pushing the global market into into, you know, a lower carbon future, they want to be a supplier into that. You know, and Tom Heller? Probably put, you probably have. I mean,
0: yeah, I have pretty strong views on this, and we have uh, lots of people working in China, so uh, some exposure to, to the questions that, that you're asking. And, and I think it's a combination of several different things. One thing that we all know is it always depends where you look to, to figure out what you see, okay? And if you're looking for various types of carbon taxes or cap-and-trade systems, whether at the international level or the national level, uh, that's not what you're going to see if you look in Brazil or if you look in China uh, or if you look in Indonesia. You may see that in a few years for reasons that we can think about. But what you see right now are very large amounts of money that are flowing out of the public sector, that is, out of the government, to give incentives, sometimes they were set up in ways that are not consistent with the trade rules when they specifically subsidize exports. But the Chinese stopped that pretty quickly. And now they are quite consistent with the trade rules and what they're doing. Um, and they basically do the reverse of the cap and trade system, right? Instead of putting a cap that puts a price on the stuff that produces carbon, they, in effect, give an incentive to do the stuff that doesn't produce carbon. And this is what we see in very large amounts. Call it a subsidy, if you want. I think it's actually very hard to define in Western terms whether the Chinese or the Brazilians are subsidizing, mm-hmm. because what we think of is a financial system where you've got a cost of capital established in markets by private institutions, private banks, private actors. That's never been the case in China. It's not the case in Brazil either. You have a public system of banking Mm -hmm. that has always been used as a way of delivering finance for developmental purposes. And this is flourishing, but it's not easily transparent to us in many ways because very often the real subsidy is in the terms of the loan, or the terms of the, or the nature of the grant that is given in a complementary way. So you have to start to unpack the way these systems do policy, which is different than the way we do policy in in our own countries. Now, having said that, the Chinese, who have spent a great deal of money ended up spending it in the past five years principally to put new equipment that is much more efficient than the equipment they were using. Mm -hmm. And so it used much less energy, which was largely coal-based, so it had much less carbon come out of it. And they did this in their top thousand companies that are owned by the central government, something we don't have, And they paid for this out of this very complex financial system that supplied the capital to do this. A totally different type of activity, but what was it reflecting? And then I'll throw this back open. I think it's reflecting an understanding that for very specific reasons is appearing first in the places we didn't expect it to occur. I think that what is being grasped, certainly in countries like Brazil and Indonesia, which are really resource suppliers, if you think of them, and certainly in China, which is the largest resource consumer in the world, they are looking at the fact that the price of resources is going up and is going to stay up. And when that happens, you're going to have to readjust your production profiles, your investment profiles, and they are anticipating the fact that this is going to be the trend of the next 20 years, which is already upon us. Why aren't we doing that? Well, I'll just suggest that we're preoccupied. (laughs) We're preoccupied with a financial crisis that is more than a business cycle problem that goes back to some of the assumptions we made about how financial markets worked that the Chinese and the Brazilians never fully bought into. And I think it has a lot to do with the shift of production from the West into East Asia. And so this clouds our vision because these are short-term problems and the resource productivity problem is a long-term problem. But Mark will correct me if we go back to when we thought about the carbon trading system. What was the price of oil? $10 a barrel? 1992, <laughs> 1990, 1993 1990 when we US, started? Yeah. Where was all the capital in the world? It was in the West. What was happening? Europe was completing its market. The United States was triumphant over the Soviet Union. Yep. China, India was bankrupt in 1990. China had not really started to grow. Ask yourself what the world we're living in now looks like compared to that. And how likely is it that the ideas we came up with under those conditions are the ones that are likely to prevail under the world into which we're moving?
1: Tom Heller is executive director of the Climate Policy Initiative. Other guests today here at Climate One are Mark Shapiro, the Center for Investigative Reporting, and Mark Stewart, a private equity investor. I'm Greg Dalton. Mark Stewart, let's get you in on this quickly. Then I wanted to mention India, which we haven't touched on yet, and we're going to go to audience questions in just a minute. So you want to talk about what uh, Tom just said there? He's, about
3: you, Tom is dead on. I mean, the reality is, you know, when we saw the – commodity price spikes of the sort of 2007-2008 range, you know, before the crash. You know, we had developing countries that were recognizing that they were extraordinarily vulnerable. I'm not even talking about China necessarily, but, you know, the ones I've mentioned before, the Chiles, the Thailands of the world, where all of a sudden, you know, when you're subsidizing an energy flow, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of 75 to 80 to your local people, and all of a sudden oil is running 140 a barrel. And you have a choice at that point of two things. One is you, you, t- you, li- you take the subsidy off and you have revolution in the street or two, you go broke. The choices are pretty, pretty stark at that point. And so the idea of you, of, you know, that the vast majority of countries around the world cannot drill or dig their way to energy independence. Uh, they are very, very, you know, uh, energy chains are getting longer and longer around the world and there's, and there's far greater instability in many places we are getting energy from. So countries recognize that efficiency and, you know, and the use of, of their own domestic resources, which in many cases tend to be cleaner energy sources, are really vital to try to tap right now because it takes the top end of that, of that energy spike off. And that's, you know, and that's a level of, of domestic security that many countries are willing to pay for today in order to take the risk away from later. Uh, let's,
1: let's touch on India and then, um Uh, We're going to put the microphone up here uh, and invite you to come participate with a brief question or comment. One, one part, question or comment. If you need some help keeping it short, I'm here for you. Um, And uh, if you're on this side of the room, I invite you to please go through that other door not to cross this camera line. And the line starts with Jane Ann, the producer uh, there in green. And uh, while we get that going, um, please uh, welcome to participate. Let's talk about India. A lot of people say this problem can't be solved without really China and India. Uh, we've talked a fair amount about China. Let's tackle India. What's happening there?
3: Uh, fairly, fairly substantially good policies around uh, solar, other renewables, and efficiency. Fairly, you know. Fairly progressive across the board, now going through substantial growth, but still on a per capita basis, India, India's emissions are still a fraction of China's, which are a fraction of us. So they have a long way to go before, before I think they're really making a substantial, substantial impact on, on the global atmosphere. I, mean, but th- I would, I would Mark question whether,
4: whether, I mean, uh, and I think you two gentlemen know a lot more about the Pacifics in India than, than, than I do, but, but I think there is a, um, Question here to be focusing on China and India and other countries when in fact it's our own country that has actually falling rapidly behind the rest of the world when it comes to these questions. So, for example, it was interesting to see that China coming out of Durban. It was very little happened in Durban. One of the things that China came out saying was that we are not even going to think about compulsory targets until the United States uh, imposes uh, compulsory targets, which was an extraordinary turn of events given that the uh, argument for withdrawing from Kyoto 10 years ago was essentially that because the Chinese wouldn't sign on, we wouldn't sign on. Now, at least rhetorically speaking, the Chinese are kind of flipping that argument. So there are enormous changes in the world now, and I think it's a... Uh, uh, for, for, for us to be thinking about what's happening in India, and in China, Brazil is, of course, roaring, a uh, very powerful force on the international stage, and the question is now... We are in the United States, uh, the largest economy in the world. Why, uh, why is this country, uh, and I was looking actually at a survey by the global legislators for a balanced environment or something, it's a group of kind of international legislators on environment, and they register kind of the initiatives at, at a global level. The United States, at least in terms of policies, is falling rapidly behind many other countries around the world, many developing countries. So the question is, number one, what are they doing that we're not? Why is China initiating these programs uh, for uh, renewable energy and et cetera, et cetera? If you looked at the EU's uh, plan, flawed as it is, deeply flawed as the ETS system is, if you took that independent of climate change, but you looked at the the economic planning that's that's going on in the European Union, independent of climate change, uh, you would find a major economy in the world making an enormous bet on uh, renewable energy uh, in the future, a huge bet of, of its uh, political and economic system. So... Um,
1: and we're not making as question, much of a bet here. Right. So. so the
4: question is why we're not making that bet here, just to keep that in... in
1: Tom Heller, briefly, then we'll go to yeah, very, uh, Just two very brief points, and people
0: can, can bring them up. Um, Mark raised the question here, why there and not where we expected it, because we were supposed to go first. And I think the answer has a lot to do with Um, the growth of the economy and where economies are growing. Because where economies are growing, therefore your government receipts are growing. And where government receipts are growing, it means that every year there are monies available to the government that are not already allocated into somebody's budget. And those monies are what are driving these subsidies and these financial changes. If you want to change anything in the United States, Given our situation, you must take money away from somebody's budget to put it into a new budget. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be politically the hardest thing I can imagine. One point about India, very quickly, um, points properly made about the energy system. But I, I, I think it really helps. And it took me a long time to see that the climate problem is not kind of an isolated environmental problem. It's about two things. It's about how we produce food and how we produce fuel, okay? And it's about the productivity you get for the resources you put into food and fuel. So India, I think, will ultimately become a very important country because if you brought the level of agricultural production in India only up to what China has, you would create enough food that you would deal with a lot of the food security problem and take tremendous pressure off the forests yep. that are being cut down for more agricultural production.
1: Let's have our first audience question. Yes, please. Welcome, yes, Climb so one. I was on the climate treaties negotiating team during the
2: Clinton-Gore administration. This has been a superb panel in terms of just your insights on the evolution of the global system for the last 20 years and the
1: climate treaty regime could you please comment on what you see not just at the evolution of the past but what you expect to happen going forward in
0: the UN system or any other international scheme for limiting global greenhouse gas
1: emissions quick look into the crystal ball and then we'll get to our next audience question who wants to take that first mark Shapiro markets I mean, are about
4: I mean I think I think one you're going to have more I think one I think you have centripetal force emerging so you have actually uh, much more, like we were talking about earlier, much more initiatives happening on independent uh, national levels. And at the same time, what may end up happening because of that is you may end up with more and more trade uh, tensions, uh, which is already happening in the aviation uh, industry. And, and, and as you get this kind of disharmonious international system, you're probably going to have more more international tensions around.
1: Uh, Perhaps more involvement of the World Trade Organization. Possibly. Um, anyone else quickly before we go to the next uh- Mark Stewart?
3: I'm fairly skeptical over the UN's role over the coming next, you know, say next half decade or more. Maybe, maybe once you start seeing some of these domestic systems start to take effect and you start seeing, you know, really, you know, bottom up carbon pricing coming from these various different policy initiatives that are occurring, then maybe some sort of coordinating role or, you know, right now there's really a need for some information provision around what policies are working where and where they can be replicated efficiently into other markets. I think that there might be a role for a U.N. in something like that to be a repository of, you know, an information sharing type of thing. But I think in terms of being a regulatory construct, I don't see it for for the foreseeable future. Let's have our next
1: audience question, please.
2: Sure. Right. My name is Kyle Grayson from the Global Footprint Network. And I guess building on that question, uh, the other topic tonight is Rio. And having been to the climate negotiations and also going to Rio, I'm curious what – progress, if any you think, could come out of Rio on climate issues, whether that's fossil fuel subsidies or nothing?
1: Tom Heller, what's going to happen in Rio? might have more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, nobody wants to be the bearer of unwanted news. Um, uh, nothing uh, significant um, will come. A um, lot of talk, which usually is the inverse of substance. And... Um, oh, yeah. The, uh, there will be a lot of targets set, um, extensions of things that were done in the past. There might be a little bit on water, some, some new pledges there. Um, but I think on the, on the climate issues, we're, this is going to be a very tough year uh, going forward to, to Qatar because developing countries having realized that the emerging markets have said that they will consider some sort of coordinating targets in 2015 that would be implemented in 2020 are now going to say well you guys haven't delivered on what you promised in the first place so this is going to be a year that's very testy mm-hmm. um, But I would say over the next few years you will see a shift in the alignment of climate, not at Rio in which what you will what you will see is more coordinated behavior, not taking fixed targets as, as Mark was suggesting earlier, but coordinated behavior among the emerging market countries and the top-tier developing countries um, and the developed countries, um, but more on the lines of kind of coordinated pledging and financing and multiple agreements, and I think by 2020, when the Durban mandate is supposed to take effect, we're going to be living in a world that even we will have recognized.
1: Mark Stewart, anything meaningful happen in Rio?
3: No. Um, the, the reality is, anybody who's ever been to one of these meetings is—they are, you know, the climate meetings alone are a complete circus. The, the ones that cover all the entire sustainable development, you know, Rio, Johannesburg, Rio, are, you know, it's 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 the circus squared or cubed at that point. It really, you know, the reality is is that you know, 15 countries deal with 85 are 85 percent of the world's emissions. Okay. And, you know, ultimately it's the, those conversations among those countries that truly matter and, you know, the U.N. process and the process that brings in lots of, frankly, extraneous uh, of, uh, opinions, frankly. You know, when, when the country of Tuvalu can shut down Copenhagen for two days over a point of order, you know, when we're at the – you know, seriously, this happened, okay? Tuvalu shut down all the negotiations for two days, Okay. So, you know, reality is, is that this is, you know, it's a good place for information sharing, for, for people to make, you know, grand statements, things like that, but in terms of real negotiations around the kind of thing Tom was talking about, about the kind of collaboration that's really possible, fairly meaningless. How many people are going to RIA
1: in the audience? Eight, ten, so, okay. Have, Have fun. Their- their t- 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 it's a great place. Uh, um. <laughs> Yes, sir. Next audience question, please. Yes,
2: my name is Dick Henry. I'm executive director of the Jordan Institute, which is a small nonprofit, uh, actually working on trying to implement solutions. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you in 97, when we started this whole process, we had sort of one level of understanding of what climate change was actually going to happen. Uh, now, you know, 25 years later, we know it's a whole lot worse than we thought in 97, And the amount of uh, methane hydrates in the permafrost in Siberia and northern Canada, not to mention the oceans, some people are saying, what do we have, 10, 15, 20 years before five times the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere equivalents uh, is going to be released, and then it's game over. And what, you know, we have to be implementing on an absolute reduction basis, uh, not on a sort of
1: so the question is, what
2: do you see that we can do to express the urgency and actually get people doing something rather than talking about how they might make it happen?
1: We have well, a lot of conversations uh, here. The scientists are very concerned. <laughs> I mean, that
2: these, you know, you have – I mean – Look, this is
4: a, uh, there's actually something, the flip side of that, this is an enormous question. And the notion that nothing's happening, I don't think is correct. I think there's an enormous amount happening at different levels all over the world. You, You know, one thing you'll have at Rio is probably quite a few entrepreneurial types who are trying to get in and make some money out of, like, some green technology thing. There's an enormous amount of energy that is happening. So the notion that nothing's happening to begin with is not really the case. What you can do is keep... Um, keep, and also, I think there's been a, uh, uh, a deep, um,
1: you know. But it's not it's, fast enough. It's, it's not science. fast enough. It's yeah, not of fast enough. not fast enough. Yeah, but I sciences. just want to,
4: and I, you know, there is no magic bullet. This guy's been in the middle of diplomacy. Uh, Mark's been
1: in the middle of the markets. I'm from
4: the outside looking at all this. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complex and diff- I mean, it sounds ridiculous.
3: Mark Stewart, markets can move fast. Capital can move quickly. I mean, the thing is, the, when we look at what is going on in the good side of stuff, it's quite remarkable. And you know, in 1997, we were putting up maybe a thousand megawatts of wind a year globally. In the last couple of years, we've been doing 40,000 and growing commensurately. You see solar, it's doing the same thing. You see, you know, the capabilities of batteries, of electrification, all this. It is happening, okay? It's happening very well. And capital is as cheap as it's ever been right now. So, You look at the technology trajectory in terms of price. You look at the capabilities of firms to put things into place. You look at the cost of capital. It's going well. What you need to do is push every policy lever you can around the world to have create more and more capability to do this stuff. And whether that's in China, in Sichuan, or in Russia, or in the U.S., whatever it may be, it's a diversified issue right now. And that's the only thing that can be done because – you know, complaining about the world system not you know not getting there is kind of a waste of your breath. So
1: we uh, we
0: got nine minutes, so let's quickly and then just real quickly. I mean, we're on we're on a path to somewhere between 650 and 750 yep. um, right now. The goal is some people think 350, but the official goal is 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 450. My sense is that 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 where we are is if we did everything right on on the way we're heading, um, we probably could. Just stabilize at 550 or so, yeah. three, 3, and a half degrees. Um, yeah. if, if, if you have serious nonlinear effects of the type, you know, these cataclysmic effects that are there over the next 10 to 15 years, there's nothing we can do about it yeah. except to Adapt. live or do something else.
1: Adapt uh, um, and get that's ready, <laughs> yeah, party, yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, there are people who want to shoot ions into
0: the atmosphere right. and block mm-hmm.
1: out the sun. There are ideas out there. We're talking about climate change at Climate One with Tom Heller from the Climate Policy Initiative, Mark Shapiro from the Center for Investigative Reporting, and Mark Stewart, a private equity investor. Let's have our next audience question.
2: So you might have just answered it. But uh, <laughs> as as individuals who are trapped in this uh, sort of slow-moving and somewhat bleak uh, tragedy of the commons and aren't necessarily
0: involved in our day-to-day work in this, is there anything we can do? Should we be writing checks to nonprofits or writing to congressmen or um, –
1: Personal yeah, action. What meaningful personal action way. can can happen? Yeah. <laughs> the journalist? I'm the journalist. We don't. We don't take. Uh, you know.
4: Uh, you know. Um, I think you can uh, educate yourself and educate other people. And if you go and to comprehend, look. Uh, you know, right now I'm I'm looking pretty deeply at the. At, uh, climate change is still considered by most people to be a very abstract idea that it's actually happening in 10, 20, 30 years down the line. It's kind of rolling out the slow motion hot, and it's going to get really hot in 20 years. Whereas, in fact, now, right now, people are living with the consequences of climate change. So, you know, I mean, I've been going up and down the state dealing with the effect of climate change on agriculture. The state of California is actually going through very profound challenges when it comes to the uh, growing capacity uh, for food in this state, the breadbasket of the country. And these are people... Who, uh, what's interesting is that farmers are very conservative parts of the, parts of the state, don't like the term climate change. But everything that they are going through right now, almost by the book, is exactly what the scientists say climate change are doing to the agricultural areas of this state, and the same thing applies to the United States uh, nationally. So actually to begin to comprehend that this notion of climate change is not some abstract idea, but it's actually being experienced right now, in ways in, in ways that, that 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 can be told um, is, I think, an important part of this process.
0: So I'll give you I'll give you a real quick answer on my part by just quoting a, you know, our major American moral philosopher, Spike Lee: "Do the right thing, <laughs> right? Do the right thing. Do cut down cut down your be conscious of your own energy use. Write to your congressman. Go out and protest and and and, and you know." Su- support education in the United States. Uh, don't believe in self-help.
1: Um, okay,
3: I, I, I do the right I, I, thing, I, and, and that's what we can do. I, I, I think it's t- I think it's telling that Mark, we're tw- we're 20 years in into the you know the idea of a low carbon world since the first Rio conference, and there is no low carbon business icon. There is no Google of low carbon. There is no Facebook, no Apple, no. You know that we've had huge companies created around many different areas, and there is not one of those. And that's where is the company that's going to achieve low, logarithmic growth over a sustainable period of time, delivering low carbon right. solutions. And that's, I think, you know, you know, if you're one thing, you know, you know that would be, would you find that company, be that company, the one that comes to my Let mind, me invest in that company. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> the one that comes from my mind is Suntech from China. Yeah. yeah. Telling. Okay. But, Next audience question, please. uh, Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. spoke here before and spoke about um, the inability for um, alternative energy users to sell energy back to the grid or or the lack of infrastructure to make the most use of those Mm -hmm. alternative energies. And, um, I don't know, he used some numbers that I couldn't really uh, um, figure out. But um, can you talk a bit about that? Maybe you touched on it earlier, but. Um, selling, selling back into the grid? Yeah. Is that something that um, you see happening soon? or how could, What's keeping that from happening?
0: Yeah, it is, I, it is happening. I'll, I'll say something about that. Look, we've got this global scale problem that we've been talking about. And then when you go to try and change something, what you run into are masses of local stuff that's deep under the hood that's really quite technical So the way in which we price electricity in the United States causes different prices Mm -hmm. for what you're drawing from the grid as to what, if you have a solar operation on your house or something else, you pay back into the grid. Because the regulatory system we have fits the technology that it grew up with. And part of the reason why things are slow is that historically, even for the Googles of this world, you had the huge government investments being made in the 1960s in the ARPANET and structures that 30 years later began to produce them. We haven't had that in the appropriate level, in the appropriate way with with climate. Um, that's not to say it can't move more quickly, but when you start to move, you run into a whole series of deep regulatory structures, and that's as true in China as it is here, and you have to
1: fight them one by one. Next audience question. Yes, sir.
4: Hi, Aaron Burdick. I'm a student at Stanford right now. And uh, my question is, you spoke about some of the changing resource dynamics, like the price of oil and how that was different uh, 20 years ago, uh, and maybe how that's providing an incentive for renewable development in developing countries.
2: So I'm curious uh, if you could talk about just how possibly some of the new developments in Fossil technologies like the shale gas boom in the U.S. and the coming shale gas boom potentially in China might affect that development.
1: Mark Stewart, you, you talk about whether, you know, gas becomes a global commodity.
3: I think it's a, it's a really fascinating question. We talk about, you know, U.S. Um, you know, putting aside leadership in many low-carbon technologies. Well, I don't understand all the implications of fracking. I'm not sure too many people do right now. But if the fracking revolution around gas turns out to be what it looks like here in other parts of the world, we may have found that bridge fuel that we were looking for, you know, much faster than we thought was possible. I mean, the idea that the U.S. would be self-sufficient in gas, let alone what should be probably an exporter of gas, if the, if the, gas, if the shale gas companies had their way, is, you know, a remarkable shift. So – I think you know that you know ultimately you know one thing that the U.S. would I think that shale gas companies here in the U.S. would like to do is be able to export their what they're doing, as opposed to paying two dollars in MMBTU here, probably getting six or seven in a global market, which would ultimately be better for renewables here because right now I can't do wind projects in Texas because gas is two dollars in MMBTU. So you know there's it's a very fascinating dynamic. It's pro- we have one minute. So I don't think I can go into that, but it's a. Really, really interesting question, particularly around gas as opposed to alternative oil. oil. So if I can Come just out.
0: make a real quick comment on that. We've all been focused for a long time on the supply side when we think about these resources. Yep. Take your eyes away from the supply side for a moment. What's going on in the world is we have now about somewhere between 800 million and a billion consumers in Asia who have household incomes between 50 and $150. They're not poor. They're not rich like we are, but what they want is food and fuel. That number is going to $3 over the next few years, okay? It's the demand side that's going to drive these prices. And the shale is going to contribute to holding it down, assuming that we don't, you know, poison our water systems. And I have no idea what the answer to that question is. But it's the demand side to focus on. The supply side problems um, are not as severe as some people think. Um, and they're not as constraining as others think.
1: We have to end it there. Our thanks to Tom Heller, Executive Director of the Climate Policy Initiative, Mark Shapiro, Senior Correspondent at the Center for Investigative Reporting, and Mark Stewart, a private equity investor. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all to, for coming and listening to comment <laughs> on
3: today. <laughs> okay. Thank a, 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 a. a Thank uh, okay. you.